a battle worth winning, consistent communion with God. I didn't even ask you in the questionnaire about that title. And here's the reason why I thought about that title, a battle worth winning, because the reality is prayer can be a what? A fight, a battle. We know we should win. We know we should be engaged in it. That's not the question. And at times we even feel convicted that we aren't. But yet we sometimes don't win. We don't win. And another reason for that main title is, as I thought about spiritual warfare, which is clear from Ephesians 6 and prayer and spiritual warfare, we are engaged in this battle. We're all, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ, are you not? You've all been enlisted. Um, it's not just those that have a vocational calling to ministry that are enlisted. You're all enlisted to fight the fight of faith. We're all supposed to do that. And as I begin to look at analogies, even in studying uh, warfare and some of our country's history in wars, um, I'm seeing these comparisons between um, praying and warfare. And I understand why at times maybe it can be difficult. Even with students here at the Master's Seminary, teaching them in the fall and in the spring on this course, um, you would think men in ministry, conservative views, high view of God, that this area might be better for them. It's not. And I don't say that to embarrass the students. Um, they're, they're honest about it themselves. From the first time they come into the class, I ask them, what are your expectations? And they say, they're saying to me, consistency in prayer. I feel overwhelmed at times with ministry, and now they have papers to write, and they have projects to be done, and they find that their prayer life is suffering from it. And what I try to communicate to them, if it's suffering now, don't think that somehow, once you're done with seminary, you're going to turn on the light switch of a dynamic prayer life. It's not going to happen. You're in the midst of a battle now. The habits that you need to... Uh, develop so that they can carry on in your life. And I would think if I ask the same sort of questions right now of all of you that are here and you say, well, my prayer life is absolutely dynamic. I'm satisfied with it, um, but I just want to learn more about it. That's why I'm here. Most likely that won't be the majority of you. And that's not an insult to you or it's not intended to be that, but that's just reality. I've seen it for years and years and years and years. People that love the Lord, pastors that love the Lord, um, missionaries that love the Lord, professors that love the Lord and teach about the Lord are struggling in this area of prayer. And the question is, and why? Why are we not winning this battle? If it's so important and we know that it is, no one's going to say that prayer is not important. It's obvious. And I thought it interesting, even in Michael's message, his second point was about prayer and problems. And some of the texts that he was addressing are some of the things that I'm going to address even as we interact um, with this topic this morning. We know we should be praying more. We feel it. At times we feel convicted, and sometimes we feel awfully convicted that we should be praying more. At times we say we're going to pray, and then we don't fulfill that promise to someone. So the question is, how can we continue to fight so that we're winning this part of the battle? And it is a battle. It's reality. So I come 
approaching you with that standpoint, um, realizing probably what you're thinking, maybe where you're even struggling, because over the years I've observed and had many conversations with people about this topic. I have. And by God's grace, the Lord over the years has allowed me to develop some habits. And those habits are now part of my life. And there's certain habits that we all have. And once we've developed those habits, we don't think about them anymore, do we? They just are simply reflexive. Um, it just happens because we've done it time and time and time again. My wife will often ask me, even when we've had a hectic schedule, um, and I, I'm up early, and she says, How do you, why do you do that when you can sleep in? This my body just says, get up. And especially if I'm sleeping somewhere and, and the light comes in and they don't have sort of a screen or something to, to keep the light out, once I, that light is around me, I, my body just says, it's time to go. Um, at times, I wish it weren't that way. I wish that I could sleep in and, and wake up at, you know, later in the morning, but it's not always that way. Are there sometimes I'm just totally, absolutely exhausted? I don't care what my body's saying. I will just stay there. There are some occasions like that, but it's a habit that over the years, I don't think about it much. There are other things I don't think about that I do. I was talking with someone at one of my Students here at the seminary, he's also in our fellowship group, and he um, played college golf. And I said, hey, I need a couple tips from you. I've been thinking about trying to get back out there again. And we went out to the range, and, and the same problem came up. And I said, I, I don't know what happened. I didn't used to do that. And he looked at a very small thing that had to do with my grip. And I said, what? Are you kidding me? And I changed it, and I hit a couple shots, and I thought, wow, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then I went out to play a couple times, and you know what? The old habits came back. It's going to take me a while to develop the new habit. It wasn't just because he said, oh, that's your problem, and I realized, yes, that is my problem. Just because I realize it, it's not necessarily going to happen. Because I have these old habits that now have to replace, be replaced with a what? With a new one. And we have habits in our life, and I'm hoping that you can develop the habit of consistent prayer, the habit of consistent prayer. Now, um, we're going to walk through a number of texts, and I'm going to hopefully give you some practical pointers as well. Also, I want to let you know this, that if at any point in time you have a question, raise your hand, you know, a point of clarity. Um, you didn't, I didn't say something clearly to you, or you just want to ask a question just in general, um, feel free to raise your hand. I mean, we do Sundays in July. This is your time. Uh, we do it for you. Uh, we want this to be profitable. And I want this to be profitable for you. Uh, absolutely. That's just true every time you teach. But perhaps even more so in this environment, I want you to get the most out of it. And if it means you raising your hand and I, and I stop to answer your question, that's great. And I generally find that in most questions... Um, that they're going to be helpful to everyone else as well, because often someone's thinking the same question, but they just don't ask it. So, okay, we have a deal on that, that you have the freedom to raise your hand and interact with me on anything that I said. So we're going to begin, but we have to go back in time to about 1440 B.C., and a group of former slaves have been delivered from the greatest power on earth. 
And what happens? If you look with me in Exodus chapter 17, we'll find those people. You probably know who they are. I'm sure you know who they are. and You know the power that they've been delivered from. And, but notice the connection in this deliverance, this battle, this fight. Here's an initial fight that the people of God have. These people have been delivered from Egypt, and there is an ensuing battle here. Exodus 17, verse 10. It says, Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Verse 11. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Verse 12, but Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. Verse 13, so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So interesting, the question here, we know that Joshua was a very capable soldier and leader, uh, but yet the success was not based on his strategy necessarily. The success was based on Moses' hands being lifted in the air. I know a couple ways to, to view that. Was it simply symbolic as they would see his hands lifted in the air, that they would be inspired by it? Most likely not because they're engaged in battle, so they're not going to be looking up and looking down and looking up and looking down. I think it represents somehow that Moses is saying to God, will you give us victory? The lifting up of hands, even in prayer, and as his hands would be in the air, it says that the people of God prevail, but when they were down, Amalek prevailed against him. So what do they do? They go and prop his hands up. In one sense, if you can allow me to make um, an application of it, I'm here today to, at least in your minds and your thinking and hopefully your instruction, that you'll be instructed, that is, that I can lift up your hands and say, God wants you to pray. Here are some means for you to think about your prayer life. Here are some tips for you. Here is a, a biblical motivation for you to be a praying people. So here is a battle. And in that battle, they're fighting an enemy that God said that they had to wipe out. The key was not so much the strategy. The key was not so much their weaponry. The key was the grace of God intervening in that situation. And that's true of all of our lives, isn't it? I mean, the bottom line is this. We are nothing apart from the grace of God. Do you agree with that? And we have nothing apart from the grace of God. And there is no genuine success in ministry or in life apart from the grace of God. So the question is, why do we not cry for God's grace all the more? Now, I'll make a statement now, and this is something I've been thinking about recently. I think that some of us, and when I say some of us, people, Bible-believing, higher view of God, I might even put into that reform doctrine, that we're more Arminian than we believe. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm convinced of it all the more, that we're more Arminian than we believe. When I say Arminian versus Calvinistic um, uh, persuasions, and I prefer to even say Pauline persuasions, really, that when we think about God and his sovereignty, our absolute trust in him, our absolute dependence on him, we would want to believe that. 
Now, everyone in this room right now, you would, do you say that you believe in the sovereignty of God? Yay or nay? Indeed. You believe that God's grace is absolutely necessary for life. Okay? And would you also believe on the, the other side that self-reliance is bad? Would you agree with that? I, I need an amen on that one, actually. Okay, good. Self-reliance is bad. Then, therefore, why are we a people who say we believe in sovereignty and the grace of God and the doctrines of grace and all of these things that are so lofty, but we find ourselves, when it comes to life, really over here, are we not? Self-reliant. We don't pray as we should. We say, God, yes, I believe that if I would be like a Moses and lift up my hands and my heart and my mind and my words to you, that you would intervene. However, I'm too busy. Yes, I believe that, but I think I can work it out on my own. So we become the Arminian, which is the sense in which this, at least in part, it's not the whole of the doctrine or the persuasion, but um, that we can do these things apart from God. Like when it comes to salvation, we'd absolutely say God has to intervene. Without divine intervention, no one can be saved. Then if that's the case, why do we try to persuade people with our own words so much and not ask God to persuade their hearts to come to faith? That is laboring for people's souls. There's one main passage that we're going to use to work through this. So if you turn with me now to 1 Peter 4. And it really is one verse, and there's going to be, we're going to also look at Colossians 4 as well, but there's a primary verse. So the context, the primary verse, if we look at 1 Peter chapter 4, that's what we want to look at. And in this passage, if we were going through it, we would see that verses 1 to 6, the example of Christ calls us to a new life because Christ has suffered in the flesh. Then those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. Uh, verse 2, not to live the rest of their lives for the lust of men, but in contrast for the will of God. The time is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, and he names what they are. So your life, uh, your former life is over, no longer live that way. And then he says in verse four, your former um, comrades in sin, if you will, maybe it's also relatives, if, if you will, um, they are surprised that you no longer run with them, that is, you no longer have this lifestyle, and now instead of congratulating you, what do they do? They malign you. But they're going to give an account. Don't be worried about that. They're going to give an account to God in verse 6. Then in verse 7, the purpose of the gospel was preached so that those who were dead might come to life. That is, God had the gospel preached to you. And when he preached the gospel to you, you came to faith. And now you can live for the will of God to the glory of God. A new life has taken place. And so Peter is calling them to this new life. But then we'll notice in verses 7 through 11, we'll say this is the eschaton of Christ calls us to a new life. That is the sense in which Christ is coming again. He is controlling all things. The end times are in his hands. Live accordingly. What is so strategic, notice verse 7. It says the end of all things is near. Therefore, 
Now, what's one of the basic things we learned in Bible study way back in maybe even our wanna days? There's a therefore, so what do we look for? What is it therefore? So the end of all things is near. Therefore, here's your response. He gives them the response, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of what? What does he say? Prayer. Interesting. Because one might think the end of all things is near. Therefore, for the purpose of evangelism, the end of all things is near. Therefore, the purpose of holiness. And I'm not saying those things aren't true. We're going to see that they are true as well. But here he says, for the purpose of prayer. You should be a praying people. Remember the churches of Asia Minor, they're undergoing persecution by Nero. People are being slaughtered. The families are being divided. They're being ostracized. They've lost at times their income. And he says, here is something that's primary for you in this call to this new life that you be a people of prayer. So he tells them that they should think eschatologically. That is, you should be thinking about the end times. Let that motivate you. And he tells them in the passage right there that they should be a people who do what? Um, They should pray thoughtfully. They should love, we'll call it, soteriologically, that is, you, you're people who are giving um, to others. You should share sacrificially, and you should serve responsibly. This is what we see um, through this passage, and it sort of unfolds this way for you. And we look at verses 7 through 11, but the heading that's, that's controlling everything is right there in 7a, live by thinking eschatologically, live by thinking about the end times. I mean, let's stop for a moment. If you knew absolutely for certain, if I could tell you that Jesus Christ is going to come before this seminar is over, would you think differently? Would, would something change in your life? If I, if I were to tell you, let's not say by the end of this seminar, before the evening service, Jesus Christ is coming again. Would you change any plans? whatsoever, or if I push it away, say, I I know for certain that at the end of August, Jesus Christ is coming again. How would you live between now and August? I would think all of us would change something. And this is in part what Peter is saying, the end of all things is near, therefore you should live accordingly. Allow that to motivate you properly is what he's saying. And so let's dive a little bit further in this passage. And so we look at this idea in verses 7 through 11. We want to live thinking about the end times. So the first thing we want to do is live by praying thoughtfully. Live by praying thoughtfully. And there is a motivation for prayer for life. What is that motivation? Well, it's right in front of us. It's the idea that Christ is coming again. This world that is not our home, it's going to be wrapped up, if you will. Our life experience will be over. And now the question is, we will have to ask ourselves, how did we live? How did we invest in this world? Go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. This passage here really complements the thought of 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. 
and we can say that the motivation to live a Christ-honoring life is grounded in eschatology. Now, eschatology is a topic that often will stir people, the interests of people, but it's more than piquing one's interest in dates and places and people and events. In the mind of the New Testament writers, it was a primary means of motivation. I've always noticed throughout my years as a Christian, if one is doing, and not just me or anyone, um, if it's a series on eschatology, the evening service, the numbers tend to do what? Go down or go up? Go up. <laughs> they do. Okay, he's going to give me the answer. I'm going to find out that date or that person or that time. It's all going to be figured out and people come out. But that next series that starts on prayer, ah, oh, where is everyone? Hmm, this is curious. We were packed last week. But now things change. In the mind of the New Testament writer, the end times was primary. Look at chapter 2. I mentioned it to you, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. There is that warfare language again. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There it is again, this sense of end times. What are we moving towards? Let that motivate you in how you live presently. And what's interesting about, if we go back to 1 Peter 4, when he says in verse 7, the end of all things is near. All things is actually first in the original text. It's saying all things, the end is near. So he's emphasizing, he fronts it to say, you need to understand that everything is coming to a close. Now you say, wait a minute, coming to a close, but now we're, you know, nearly 2,000 years removed. But they didn't know that. And just for us today, we don't know. The heavens will be opened up, and if we believe in a... Um, a pre-tribulational rapture that we're going to be taken away and the opportunity for us on this earth is now gone. That can happen in any moment. It really can. And so we should live accordingly. So this idea of imminency is really important in Peter. Imminency in Peter. Go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. So when we think about imminency, we're saying uh, his imminent return. That is, it could be any moment. It could be uh, any second, the imminency of his return. And so we should live our lives with the expectation that he could come in any moment. It is important for Peter and the writers of the New Testament. Look at 1 Peter 1, verses 3, and we're going to kind of walk through 3 to 13 and hit some highlights. We would say in verse 3 that the resurrection of Christ initiates this. So now that Christ is resurrected, now we are in these different end times because now the apostles are doing what? They're waiting for Jesus Christ to simply come again. So this initiates at the resurrection of Christ. Verse 4, we can say this, we have a salvation that's reserved in heaven to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled will not fade away, reserved in heaven. So again, the language is still looking to the future. It is reserved for you. You await it. And then verse five, 
It's going to be revealed at the last times. In verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 7, our faith is going to honor God at his revelation. Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, this idea of eschatology that's here, looking to the future. Verse 13, what does it say? Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, this idea in view of Christ coming again, in view of this salvation that you wait on, make sure that your lifestyle is in accord to that is what's being communicated. So imminency in Peter is very important. So he says, verse seven, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer, for the purpose of prayer. How about the last hour and behavior? Now I've said that it, this is true in New Testament writers, the last hour, our behavior, it should motivate us to behave accordingly. And I don't have time to go through all the verses, but let me just highlight some of them. I would encourage you, if you're, you're taking notes in that way, to write them down. Um, Romans 13, 11. It's really 13, 11 through 14. Ultimately, he says in verse 13, let us behave properly as the day, not in carousing and drunkenness. But he says in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. Because this something is going to happen in the future. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The same thing is here. Upon whom the end of the ages have come. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We're to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in what? The work of the Lord. Why? Because we, the Christ is resurrected and we look to that resurrected Christ coming again. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4 four through nine. Again, the motivation is telling us that we should behave accordingly. Let's all go to Hebrews 10 though. Hebrews 10, look with that one with me. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised is faithful. Let us consider how to simulate one another to love and good deeds. A great verse, isn't it? We know it well, perhaps. Not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day is doing what? What does it say? Drawing near. Drawing near. The same thing would be true in James chapter 5, um, 1 John 2.18, Revelation 1.3. Revelation 1, 3. So there is a relationship between our behavior and the last hour. And Peter's saying a part of it should be prayer. Um, dialing back the clock a little bit on my life, um, when I played college football, I uh, still remember the days when it came to the fourth quarter. You may have, if you ever watch football, I don't really watch it that much anymore. Um, but you may have noticed a team, I guess basketball does it too, I'm not sure. You'll see them when it comes to the fourth quarter, they put up these four fingers. 
And what they're saying is, even if you're behind, even if you were losing the game, you put up your four fingers and saying, this is it. We have one more shot. Here's our opportunity to either keep the win or to come from behind to try to win. And it was this motivation. And you go around and you hit each other on the pads and you slap each other on the head, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, we did those sort of things back then as if that was going to help you. Uh, I, I guess it did. It, it got you a little bit psyched up. But if you went out there and the guy's bigger than you and better than you, it doesn't help really. <laughs> yeah. But it was the fourth quarter. We're saying, this is it. First quarter's over. Second is over. We had the halftime. Third quarter's over. We have 15 more minutes. And then it's over with. Give your all. And we would say to each other, leave it on the field. Leave it on the field. Leave it on the field. And it's like, Peter and the writers of the New Testament are saying, leave it all behind. Because the opportunity for you to do the things that you have the opportunity for now will no longer be available when Christ comes again. There is no praying for that lost one when you're taken away. There is no evangelizing that person that you know you should speak truth to. There is no living out your life before a dying and lost world. We are all in the fourth quarter. And the question is, will we leave it here? But what's unfortunate is this. Um, many believers are attempting to take it all with them. Where is that in the scriptures? It's what did Jesus Christ say about the things of the world? Rust and moth do what? What does it do to it? Destroys it, corrupts it. How about this? So let's go a step further. Peter and the Lord's Prayer. What I want you to understand about this is every biblical writer has been influenced by their experiences. I mean, you think about Paul and as he writes this distinguished Jewish pedigree, um, but he is one who did what he vehemently opposed the Jewish religion, but yet on the opposite, even as we heard some of it this morning in the first service, here is a man that was given to it. Something he had at one point in time attempted to destroy, but now it's not that way. We think about Peter, someone who had witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And that would in some way, I think, influence his call to holiness. It's worth noting that Peter and his disciples um, were asleep for a portion of that great event. If you look at Luke chapter 9, 28 to 36, they were asleep for a portion of the transfiguration. And what's interesting is before the transfiguration, Jesus was praying. Jesus Christ, constantly we see of his life, his hour that was coming, his hour that was coming, and then it came. And you remember Peter as he is in the garden that he comes to them and it's three times that they have fallen asleep. And I always thought it interesting too that it's three times that he denies the Lord. And it's also three times that the Lord asks him, do you, what, do you love me? And one way to express our love even is that we pray to the God that we claim is our savior. What about the mindset of a prayer for life? Go back with me to 1 Peter 4. The end of all things is near, so we've established this importance to think about uh, things eschatologically. Then in verse 7, 
Again, he says, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. What does this mean, sound judgment? In Mark chapter 1 and in Luke 8, it actually refers to someone um, who is in a proper state opposed to one who is demon-possessed. So they have a sound judgment as opposed to one that's possessed. It means to keep one's head. It means to be collected. It means to be self-controlled. It means to be balanced. And the idea to be sober-minded, I think Peter is clearly contrasting it to his statements in verse 3. Notice what he says. So sound judgment and sober spirit are sober-minded is what he's saying, but this is in contrast to their former life. And what was their former life? Notice verse three. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatry. So now, in contrast to that life, a life that was the opposite of soberness, it was drunkenness, it was this party life, now be a person that's sound in judgment and spirit is what he's communicating. Um, the word is used, go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 8. Notice what it says there. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of the night nor the darkness. So then... Let us not sleep as others do, but be on the what? What does it say? Alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and, the, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So a contrast is here. We need to behave accordingly. But let's move ahead. How about the practice of a prayer for life? The definition of prayer. I think this verse helps us somewhat with the definition. Um, we can conclude that prayer must be intelligible. We can conclude that it should be selfless. We can also conclude that there's a certain measure of intensity to prayer because it says the end of all things is near. Make sure that you have this purpose, sound judgment, sober spirit. And he says, for the purpose of prayer, you're engaged in this warfare. There's an intensity to prayer. Now, dyslexically, the word is a basic definition for prayer, but it should be noted, though, that Peter uses a plural form. So he uses a plural form for prayers. It says, let your prayers, and the question is, why might he say that? Well, think for a moment in context. Remember the church, Asia Minor, they're facing persecution, dreadful persecution. And, okay, I'll, I'll say this differently. When you're facing, and I'll, you can interact with me for a moment. When you're facing difficulties in life, your prayers tend to be directed to what? Yeah, you could say it out loud. Yeah, self and where I am and my needs and what's happening with me. That's not necessarily bad because the Lord gives us prayer for those moments. So make sure that you understand that. But our prayers can be limited to that. 
And I believe one reason that Peter uses this plural form is to say, yes, I've written to you about the persecution. I've told you to follow the example of Christ. I've said that you must emulate him, but don't allow your prayers to be too myopic. Don't allow them to just be focused on your suffering and your difficulty. Make sure your prayers include intercession and praise and adoration. Make sure that your prayers are still asking for things from the Lord for your own spiritual growth. And we have to be careful that our prayers are holistic and not become too singular, if you will. Prayer is what we see in Hannah. Remember, Hannah is facing the stigmatism of being barren. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, when uh, the man of God thinks that she's drunk, when he sees her lips moving and he's, why is it that you're drunk at this time? And she, her response was this, no, my Lord. And she says, for I'm pouring out my heart before the Lord. So here is a part of the definition of prayer. Prayer is pouring out your heart before your heavenly father. And this is why the Pharisees, this is why Christ indicted the Pharisees because they thought, well, by their many words, they were going to be heard. But prayers are pouring out of the heart before the Lord. Moses helps us to understand prayer. It involves intense conversation with God, but it involves intercession as he would intercede for the people of God often. Calvin reminds us of prayer as well. Calvin would say that prayer is the lifehood of the child of God. It's interesting to note this. And Calvin's institutes, as vast as they are, if you were to go to Calvin's institutes, uh, his theological treatises, if you will, his understanding of the Christian life and how to live it, his understanding of God and his interaction with the world and the church, the largest chapter in Calvin's institutes is on prayer. Absolutely marvelous theologian, but yet he realized that my theology and the life of the church will mean nothing unless we are praying people. Listen to this quote from Calvin. And he said, our prayer must not be self-centered. It must arise not only because we feel our own need as a burden we must lay upon God, but also because we are so bound up in love for our fellow men that we feel their need as acutely as our own. To make intercession for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them. So do you love your family? Pray for them. Jesus even said you're supposed to love your, what? Something that was radical. Love your enemies. Pray for them. And I love the wording of Calvin when he says we feel their need as acutely as our own. And this is biblical as well, because the scripture tells us what? That we weep with those who weep, do we not? And we have joy with those who have joy. It was John Edwards that said this, there is no way that Christians in a private capacity can do so much to promote the work of God and advance the kingdom of Christ as by prayer. As by prayer. We see this in the example of Jesus Christ as he prayed to his father. The apostles in the early church as they would pray and thousands would be added. We see it in the reformers in their battle for souls. We see it in William Carey and his faith to reach the people of India, a man of prayer. 
a book that I read going back, dialing back the clock when I was here, showed up on this campus in 1989 to attend seminary. And I think it was in 1990 when I took that class on prayer. And the book that I read was Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. I never forget that book. And that was a part of prayer is so important. Hudson Taylor, what was his spiritual secret? In part, his prayer life. It's an example of a George Mueller and the millions that would be contributed to his ministry because he was a man of prayer. All the stories that we hear of Mueller, a man of prayer. It's Charles Spurgeon in his boiler room. When the story is told, when one asked about what was the power of his ministry and of his pulpit, and he took them to literally the boiler room, but there were also people there praying, here is the power. And it rises up to the pulpit, and it then goes out to the people to have a praying people. It's Amy Carmichael and her dependence on the Lord to direct and protect and provide men and women of prayer. So the question for you then might be, then what will be your role in history? But this is what we should think through. No one may ever know your story, but that really is secondary. Does the Lord know? No one may ever write about your prayer life, but will the Lord know? And will you intercede for other people that have needs? Will you then, as you're in heaven, be greeted by saints that can say to you, somehow your prayers had a great effect. You know, I mentioned college football before. I've made a profession of faith when I was 12, really didn't know the Lord. Uh, it was the cultural thing to do, I, I suppose. I really didn't come to the Lord until I was in college. And, um, and when I did, it was my sophomore year. Yeah, sophomore year. I came to the Lord. And i never forget it. I called my Aunt Mildred. My mom had passed away when I was young. My dad was still at home. And I called her up, and, um, and she would pray for me all the time. I'll never forget it. I called her up. Aunt Mildred, I said to her, I came to Christ. I came to Christ. Now, I had said the prayer in her home at a VBS when I was 12, but she knew I really didn't know the Lord. And uh, I came to Christ. You know the first thing she, Mildred said to me? The first thing she said to me was this. I will never forget it. I prayed for you every, what do you think she said? Day. I prayed for you every day. And she prayed for me every day, and I absolutely believe it. And a part of those prayers join with God's sovereign plan of election. Can we fully understand it? No, we cannot, but we know it to be true. I came to faith. She had powerful prayers. And she also prayed other things, too, for me. And um, when I busted up my knee, I mean, I didn't, uh, I mean, football was fun to pay for school. I, I wanted another career, and the Lord took that away from me. And I thought, maybe I'll play football for a while and make some investments and do something else. And senior year, busted up my knee, um, ACL, MCL, torn apart. You know, these things happen. Um, and um, I called her up and told her that too. And guess what she said? <laughs> she was like, I prayed, Lord, don't let him go to the NFL. Don't let him go to the NFL. I was like, hey, Mildred, at least she could have said, give him a three-year contract or something, you know? <laughs> Come on, why? So I guess so. There you go. Prayers answered again. 
Oh my, I'll never forget that. Those two times, don't let him go to the NFL, Lord. Because in her mind, I'd become to the Lord. I was going to go there and get corrupted, I guess. But anyway, I could have worked out a deal. But <laughs> and that's what we always say. Lord, if you just allow this to happen, then I'll do this. And, and we always tend to say, no, give to missionaries. And that's what I actually said. See, Lord, I, I know how to work money. I'll just make some investments. I'll help missionaries around the world. And he said, you will be one. But maybe not in a foreign field, but you'll be one. And that's what he did. He called me to the ministry. Yeah, prayers matter. They do. But prayer can be hard, too. And I mentioned some elites, some people that we are, they're known for their spirituality and their prayer, but it's not limited to them. I mean, when Peter writes this, is this letter written to Amy Carmichael? Is this written to George Mueller? Well, yes and no, but you get my point. He does not quote them. He does not reference them. All of you, you are called to prayer is what he's saying. It's hard. Even Martin Luther said this, listen to him. The hardest work of all, a labor above all labors, since he who prays much must wage a mighty warfare against the doubt and murmuring excited by the faint-heartedness and unworthiness we feel within us. So Luther's attention, it's a hard work. It can be a difficult work. It's a labor of love because sometimes you're fighting with what you feel inside. Maybe you even feel this sense that, Lord, are you hearing me? You're dealing with, am I worthy of this? What will be the outcome of this? And so you're fighting this internal battle at times. And then there's also the battle of the wandering mind. It's a hard work. The example of prayer is, in one sense, we, we've talked about it. I mean, it's Jesus who prayed for 40 days and 40 nights, and he prayed often, and he prayed away, and he would go and be away. He prayed. Here is the, the very Son of God. All power is in his very hands. But yet, what does he do? He would often steal away and do what? Pray. And how much more are we? It's like I already re referenced Hannah, who in her sincerity, she says, I'm pouring out my heart before God. It's Daniel who would pray three times a day. It's Hezekiah. When he is at the end of himself and Shennacherib has surrounded the city and they have wiped out the Assyrians and wiped out all of the other cities and all the other people groups that were in their way. And Hezekiah feels overwhelmed. And what does he do? He prays. And even once that victory is given him and then the word comes that his life is going to end, get your house ready, he prays and the Lord extends even his life. Nehemiah, even as he goes before the king because he is burdened because the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and he wants to go and see about it, he prays before the king silently before he goes before him. And then these exalting prayers that you see in the book of Nehemiah. Samuel. 1 Samuel 12 and 23, Samuel, the great prophet. And what does he say? Moreover for me, far be it that I should, notice this, that I should sin against the Lord by not praying for you. 1 Samuel 12 and 23. Samuel saw it as a sin. How can I, how can I not pray for you? 
And we obviously see Paul throughout his letters, great prayers. Let's move ahead here. Any questions? I'll, any questions you have? Okay, excellent. I see a question over there from my newborn, new, new in the Saint Lord, or new in the Lord Saint, that is. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Sure, that's an excellent question. The question is the sovereignty of God and prayer itself. I alluded to it earlier. Um, there is a, a certain degree, there's a mystery to that, but I'll just maybe say it in, in a couple of sentences. We do believe that God uses means. That is, we believe, say, for instance, in salvation, that we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. That's that's set, secure. Even Jesus Christ, he was slain before the foundation of the world. Um, God's sovereignty mean, it means that God has the absolute right to do as he pleases. It means that God has the ability to do as he pleases. And it also means that God has the desire to do as he pleases. So that's absolute sovereignty. We think about, say, for instance, a sovereign nation, and we call them a sovereign nation because we're saying that they're independent from anyone else. So God's sovereignty means he has absolute freedom from all circumstances, powers, because all powers are less than him. But in that sovereignty, God uses means to enact his sovereign will. When it comes to evangelism, um, if we're chosen before the foundation of the world, but Jesus Christ, even as he is, is ascending back into heaven, um, he commissions them to do what? Go and preach the gospel. And it's Romans chapter 10, how will they hear lest someone is sin? And it's that whole sequence that says, we participate in the sovereign plan of God. Um, there is a mystery to what is this human means, God's sovereignty meet? Um, I don't know that that can be answered and it's not a cop out. I would honestly say that if there's anyone that says they, has an, they have an absolute answer to it, don't listen to them. It's just not the human mind cannot fully reconcile it. Um, that, that's a tension that we live with, but nonetheless, we see that both are true. We see that we should pray, we see that we should evangelize, but we see that God is controlling and saving people according to his sovereign will. But we have the privilege of participation in that sovereign plan. So we're absolutely fully sovereign, but yet we have a responsibility to abide by the things we know to be true. Yeah. I think I saw a hand over there. Yes, first. Sure. Yeah, I think our prayer should, as much as we know his will, because sometimes we don't. Say, for instance, in a prayer, I'm always going to be praying um, for someone's sanctification because we know that's the will of God. God's will for you is your sanctification. Um, so I pray for their sanctification. What that's going to look like and how he brings it about, I don't know. Because even as we heard this morning, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, or really 11.30 through 12.10, this idea, God may use difficulty to bring about what? 
How many people in this room have suffered, but that suffering has brought about sanctification? Oh, my word. So generally, I don't start off by saying, God, bring suffering so that they'll be sanctified. I will start out, but there have been times, whatever means necessary, Lord, to bring this about. Now, there have been people that I pray for that are in sin, that I pray, God, that you would trouble them, that you bring difficulty their way so that they would forsake their sin, because I know that sin is not the will of God. And at least in my limited understanding, it seems to me that some difficulty might allow them to break away from that sin. Because that's biblical, too, because Paul says what? There was one in Corinthians account that they handed over to Satan, right? That they would not sin. And affliction has the sense of refocusing our thoughts. But I don't always know the will of God for someone. I mean, I could, I could pray for, Lord, you would bring them, uh, you know, someone that's single, bring them a, a godly man or a godly woman that they might be married. I don't know that that's God's will for them. But it's not hurtful for me to pray that way. I pray for my kids. I want them to marry a godly uh, man or woman, and I'll pray that for them. And, and I pray that one day I, I like to go to five weddings. Um, but wait a minute, I have to pay for two of those. You know? <laughs> Hmm, okay. <laughs> no, I'll still go. <laughs> yeah. Yes, question right here. It's not a question, it's a comment. Something that I wish I could do more, but have done in my sure. life with the Lord. When I'm able is when I'm in pain and suffering for myself, there are times when I'm able to use that pain to pray for others, my, my fervency and my intensity. I, I can't always do it, but when I can, it's just so very special. Yeah, what she's saying is that sometimes in her, even her own pain or difficulty, that's a motivation to pray for others, which I think is appropriate. We are going through difficulty. She causes us to have a compassion for others as well that may be facing the same thing. Okay, great. Well, let's move on. And we'll another break. And I'm hoping to finish this and we'll just Q&A for a while, okay? So let's talk about the biblical examples of sober prayers. We've seen those. Um, the method of prayer. And let me just give you some words that may help us. Let me give you some words that you'll see up there as well. First is thoughtfulness. To be thoughtful. That is sound and sober. That's what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 4, 7, that our prayers must be thoughtful, sound judgment, sober spirit. It's the opposite of what he is saying in verse 3, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties. So your prayers must be thoughtful. And I would add to that thoughtfulness, the sense of selflessness, which is our next word, selfless, selfless. Because the person is level-headed, they will think rightly about others and what's really most important in life, will they not? But if you're not being level-headed, you don't think about the future. You don't think about eternity. You think about the here and now, here and now. Sober-minded people are not fixed on the temporal and material. They are not, because they realize those things don't matter. How many people do you know they've had things but have nothing at all? People that I've known throughout my life can have the world but have nothing. And this is why even the scripture tells us, um, don't worry yourself to gain wealth because it takes up wings like an eagle and it flies away. 
This is why you see the better in Proverbs. Better is, even it says, what, it, what is it? Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a, um, than a, than a slaughtered ox where there's hatred. So give me a family where we love one another. It's beans and rice. As opposed to we're living, it's filet mignon, a little cream sauce with asparagus, right? But we're at odds with one another. This is better. Better is integrity than wealth. Better. And so sober-minded people think that way. They are selfless. Let our prayers be selfless. Let us be like a Moses and we intercede for other people. How about this next word? The next word is consistent, without ceasing. And that's what we want, do we not? I'm not convinced that anyone in this room never prays. But the question is, how can I be consistent? And that's what we want to strive for. What's interesting in this idea of warfare, communication is so important. It's obvious. Um, I was reminded of it again, my what, uh, two older sons that are both Marine officers, and we were actually in Quantico, Virginia last week, and they had a graduation from some other special training, and it was fun going to the base, and they had a family day, so all the families from around the country, their sons and daughters who were going to graduate from the special training were there, there are 300 people in their company, and we got to see the Osprey walk through it, we got to see a 50 cal, I'm saying, what is he talking about? Um, we got to see other things, it was really cool seeing it, and we went to this one area where they were staging war, and things like that. But what was so important, and I think we all agree, is communication. If there's no communication, guess what? Question for you. When it comes to relationships, um, what is the issue that creates the most conflict generally in relationships? What's that word? The three issues come down to money and what else? Communication. And number one really is communication. They don't understand me. That's not my language. I thought you meant. No, I said. It was clear to me. <laughs> ah, some of you have been there and done that, right? What do you mean? Why are you asking me a question? It's perfectly clear what I said to you. <laughs> Maybe not really. Communication. Then there's just no communication. So it's supposed to happen by osmosis. You just should have known. And that's happened before too. What do you mean I should have known? You didn't tell me. So a lack of communication. That's why in warfare, you will find it throughout modern warfare, especially the first thing that happens in modern warfare, especially is let's take out what? Communication. So what we want to do, cell towers, radio towers, communication buildings, roads, bridges, let's take them out. That way you cannot do what? So then if company B is here and company C was supposed to come for support, but B and C can't talk, guess what? I mean, think about it, even Napoleon, I mean, great warrior, but my goodness, to have a supply line you know, from France and through Europe into Russia, and then you're there in the, the dead of winter, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But sometimes the ego can do things that we shouldn't. Communication. You communicate with your God. 
He communicates to you through his word. And I think it communicates to you through the sense of peace that's in your spirit. Here's the next word. Prioritize. Prioritize. I mean, if, if communication is the key to our relationships, then our prayer to God for ourselves and for others must be prior, primary. We have to prioritize this. How about, here's another word for you, organized. Order helps fight the wandering mind. Is anyone in this room, and I won't even say, I won't even ask the question, how many times, I won't even ask that because I know it's often, and we all do what? The mind can wander, can it not? We can approach prayer with the greatest of intentions. We're going to be a Hannah. We're going to be a Moses. We're going to emulate our Lord Jesus Christ, and our intentions are good, and we start, and the mind begins to do what? Wonder. And you don't have to respond to this. Sometimes in the midst of a spiritual battle, not only does the mind wonder, but the mind can go to a place you thought, how can it possibly go there when I'm praying? And then you feel awful and bad. Because that's why there's a battle in the mind. That's why we're supposed to take on the mind of Christ. That's why we should renew the mind. So organize. Here's our next word. But yes, organize is good, but don't forget spontaneity. I mean, prayers that spring from needs and feelings. Don't be frightened by being spontaneous in your prayers. I mean, if you're going along the way, and this has often happened to us, we're in a car, we're driving, we see an accident on the road, and we'll stop and pray. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for that situation. Or you, you can, between now and walking across campus, you hear about something, you talk to someone. It wasn't your intention to organize your prayers, but now something has come to your attention. Stop and pray about it. A burden that you feel in your own soul. Why do I feel this burden? Let me pray about this. Don't be so terribly organized that it becomes too sterile. Remember, this is just conversation. And this conversation is pouring out of your heart to the Lord. Here's another word for you, worshipful. Prayer is communion that's directed to God. And prayer is an act of worship. I mean, Scripture is clear that God does what? God invites his people to pray. In the book of Revelation, among other places, we see prayers of the saints are an incense to God. Revelation 5, Revelation 8. They are before the throne of God, and they are before God. So when you pray, think for a moment with me, your prayers are an incense to God. It's a, a sweet aroma to him. So a part of the motivation is, God, when I pray to you, you, the living God, you're actually telling me, and your word communicates to me that this is an attractive aroma to you? It's worship. You're engaged in worship. How many of you enjoy singing when in church? Ah, it's great. I love it. And we pull out a hymn or you pull out a whatever it may be, chorus book, praise book, and you sing to the Lord. That's biblical, obviously. Colossians 3, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. And our prayers are part of this worship as well. Go with me, though. I have another word, but go with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4. So our next word is devoted. 
It's the commitment of prayer. Colossians 4, notice what he says. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well. So it's a request that, yes, you should be devoted in your prayer. Notice he says, keeping alert. There's that language of warfare again. One cannot be asleep. But with thanksgiving, God, I thank you for all that you've done, who you are. Then he says, praying at the same time for us as well. Include us in your prayers when you do this. And here's something specific that the gospel message would expand. And then in verse 4, he prays that I would be clear in the way I ought to speak. One thing that you can do even on a given Sunday morning is when you're there in your pew, pew praying for who was preaching the message, look at their passage. Lord, look at that passage and say, Lord, help give them clarity on this. This can be difficult. Lord, this is an evangelistic passage. Maybe you would open the eyes of someone here today and they would come to faith. So this is what it means. Um, a wall or desertion in prayer. Who knows what AWOL means? Okay, I, I, I see an army hand in the back. That is true, but say it loud for us. Yeah, th there's a difference. So, um, the actually Navy would say unauthorized absence. They just call it UA, AWL. So, this idea that we are away without leave. We should be somewhere. Desertion is different, and actually for desertion, one can be executed for that. Um, think about being AWOL. We, in Christians, I think sometimes, I don't believe we are deserters altogether, because the deserter says, I do not want to be here. I am going away now. I'm leaving the fight. The AWOL, maybe it's a moment. Maybe their intention is to come back eventually, but in that moment, they are AWOL. And I think that sometimes Christians are AWOL. There is an unauthorized absence that's there. You want to be there. You want to pray, but you're AWOL for a bit. Now, desertion is different. It can result in the death penalty, maximum punishment during the time of war. So if someone deserts during the time of war, they can be executed. However, since the Civil War, only one American has received the death penalty for desertion. Actually, it was Private Eddie Slovak in 1945 because it was a time of war. Question, are we at war? Absolutely. Ephesians 6, as well as other passages, these powers that we're fighting against, we're engaged in a war. And I pray that we would not be AWOL. Okay, some practical ways to devoted prayer. First, let's talk about these nine obstacles. And just to let you know where I'm going with it, I'm going to give you nine obstacles. And then I'm going to give you nine countermeasures. And again, keeping with this language of warfare. So a countermeasure uh, is a sense we're under attack. How do we counter that attack? Is what I'm saying. Number one, it's this. Because of an inadequate view of God. 
if we had an adequate view of God, a larger view of God, I believe we would spend more time in prayer. Number two, because of an ignorance of prayer. We don't fully understand it. But we don't have to grasp every aspect of prayer in order to be engaged in it. Number three, because of misusing prayer. Some people are not engaged in devoted prayer, consistent prayer, because of the misuse of prayer. I look at your own heart and ask, what do I pray for? What are the things that are foremost in my mind? How often do I intercede? How often do I labor for others? Will I be that person on the other end of the phone that says, I prayed for you every day. I prayed for you weekly. You were in my schedule. On Tuesdays, I prayed for you. On Wednesdays, I prayed for you. But we misuse prayer. And in part, we misuse prayer because of the horrendous, ugly, vile doctrines of the faith movement. And, I, and I'm noticing it over time. Whenever I mention it, I add words, descriptive words to it because I see how harmful it can be to people. And they misuse prayer because the tendency towards people in that camp, and I'm talking about, and let me make a clarification, because sometimes people say, well, charismatics, they all are like that. That's not true. They aren't. They're charismatics who have a certain conviction about the gifts and giftedness. And then they're the extreme people. It's the Benny Hands of the world. It's the Kenneth Copans of the world. It's the Marilyn Hickeys of the world. It's those people who are in another category altogether. And it's vile and it misrepresents God. And they teach a view of prayer uh, that is atrocious. It's not biblical because it's so self-absorbed. It's so about the temporal it's not eschatological. It's not the future. They're trying to hoard as much as they can in this life instead of realizing, wait a minute, what did Jesus say? Wrath, moth, and rust is going to destroy? Now, again, that doesn't mean you can't have things. But when prayer becomes that, that's not biblical prayer. It's also this, because of unchecked sin, the psalmist is clear. The Lord would not hear me because I regard iniquity in my heart. It's the husband who um, doesn't get it at home. It's 1 Peter 3, 7. His prayers are going to be hindered. He can't have a dynamic prayer life because he's not taking care of the home, and particularly his wife. Number five, because of misplaced passion. Misplaced passion, that is, we first enter into, let me make this clear, we first enter in prayer because we're saying, what a great privilege that actually I can talk to the living God. Romans 5 tells us at one point in time we were helpless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were enemies. And now that is radically changed. I can speak with God. But our passions are elsewhere. And we have to redirect them. How about this? Because of the battle to discipline the mind. It is a battle. It is a reality. That's why even Luther, in his frankness, says it is a hard work to do. But nonetheless, we have to fight. It's number seven because of losing heart. Jesus Christ said, don't lose heart. And sometimes in prayer, we can lose heart. I'm glad my aunt didn't lose heart. And she kept praying every day. There are people that maybe I'll, I've been praying for for years and, and maybe it'll turn into decades that I've been praying for those people. And there may be something in your life that you're praying about, but you have to show that tenacity. Number eight, 
because of a lack of love. If in fact, prayer is worship to God and we love God, somehow we don't love him as much as we should. And if prayer is interceding for others that we should love, we're not loving them as much as we should. I'm not saying you don't love them at all, but not as much as we should. Number nine, because of underestimating spiritual warfare. We don't realize that we're engaged in this spiritual warfare and we cannot underestimate it. The enemy will do all that he can so that you're not communicating with the Lord. It was interesting and actually, I think I remember the number. Yes, in the Gulf War, um, they flew 100,000 sorties or sortie of mission, aerial mission. In the Gulf War, it was, like I said, communication towers, radio buildings, bridges, roads, 100,000, 100,000. And in part, that was done because air superiority. Now we have destroyed, at least as much as we can, communication. We can bring in ground troops. We're engaged in a spiritual warfare. The enemy doesn't want you to commune with God. I mean, if, if communication with God, if prayer is communication with God, wouldn't you want as much as possible to discourage communication? Here's some countermeasures, though. Number one, spend time meditating on the greatness of God. Let thoughts of God well up in your heart, and then that, even at times that just becomes spontaneous, and you can pray to the Lord. Number two, Increase your knowledge of prayer just by reading and listening to messages on prayer. Read things about prayer. That that would stimulate you. Now, I do want to say this. There are some people who have had some dynamic prayer lives throughout history. And it's sometimes you can read them and say, that will never be me. That's never going to happen. And we hear a story of a Martin Luther that says, uh, there is so much that I must do today that I must spend the first two hours in prayer. And at times he said three hours in prayer. And you have men throughout history that says that he prayed so much that he wore a spot in his wooden floor. I still don't know how that can happen, but nonetheless, that was a reputation. So sometimes we can read these people and say they are sort of other than me. I don't think those people, when they began developing the habits, thought that. They just developed the habits and it became a part of their life. And let me also say this, if you don't pray two hours a day or an hour a day, or right now you're striving for seven minutes a day, start with seven minutes. You say, that doesn't seem to be too lofty. Well, let's do the math. And you know the math. You, what, what equation do you think I'm going to give you? Seven or zero? Which do you choose? It's kind of basic, isn't it? Well, I, don't, I can't just pray for seven. That's not godly enough. That's not spiritual enough. No one would ever write about my prayer life if I only prayed for seven minutes a day. <laughs> That's not the objective. Be consistent. And then once consistent, oh, wow. I've mentioned that habit, my golf swing that... He noted, and I'm trying to work it into my system. I don't play enough to get it in there, but I've been playing a little bit more. And actually, now that I've gone out, Joanna will ask me, so how was it this time? You know, it's better. 
It's not where I want it to be. I have to create new muscle memory, and that's literally it. You do something for years, and there's just this muscle memory. You don't think about it. And I was doing it for years and years and years, and it's just in my system. Now I've got to get it out of my system and put something else in. And so with you, you start with something that is manageable, and you get it in your system, and you realize, this is really good. I enjoy this. This can be done. I thought it was going to be difficult, but it really isn't that difficult. Here's this. Develop a tender heart by praying through tragic news. We see tragic news all the time. Friends, pick up a paper. You say, what can I pray about? Pick up a paper and read through the hurt and pain that people are going through and pray for them. You may end up praying for another city or country or family. I mean, recently it was a golfer, Lashley is his name, and I think it's Nick, and he actually um, won a tournament, the three, it wasn't the 3M, it was right before that. I forget the golf tournament that he won. And, um, and he put out, he was gonna give away like, um, his real cool golf bag that had an army camouflage on it and a hat and some clubs to an active duty serviceman. And he had tweeted it out, and I don't know how it came about it, I think because someone told me about his story, because in 2017, he lost his girlfriend, a fiance, and both parents, a tragic accident. And he was like, forget golf, I can't focus. He sort of come, he's come back, he won this tournament, now he has an exemption, he can play in the Masters, and other things like that, so he tweeted out. And I said, hey, I responded to him. I said, very generous of you. I need to pass this on to my two Marine sons. And I had a picture of me and my sons in it. And I said, I saw your story from 2017. Prayed for you, exclamation point. And I did. I, I don't know the man. I may never meet him. But I prayed for him. And he had, I don't know, a couple thousand people that had responded. And I, it was interesting that two days ago, I noticed that he had at least responded to my message. So I was able to pray for someone I may never meet. And maybe I'll see him on television again, perhaps. Um, you say, what can I pray about? Open the news. I use an app, you know, like I use Flipboard to kind of go through news. Flip through it. Pray for people. Develop a tender heart. Let me say this as well. Avoid the frustration response. What is the frustration response? I notice this so often in... Our camp, conservative, Bible-believing, high view of God, absolute certainty of truth camp, that we can deride what's happening at the world in a heartbeat. Look at the world. I can't believe it. Look what's happening here. I can't believe that president. I can't believe that senator. I can't believe this person. I can't believe the church. Why are we this way? Why are we that way? Look at those charismatics. Look at those people. Look at that seminary. It used to preach truth. No, it doesn't. And I've often asked people this question. Have you ever prayed for them? And you know what? There's this often, this eerie silence. <laughs> like Barack Obama was in office. Oh, Barack Obama. Oh, he's a liberal. Oh, he's this. And I've asked, when was the last time you prayed for Barack Obama and his family? Crickets. <laughs> That's shameful. It's shameful. You say, on what basis do you say it's shameful? Because it violates... The scripture, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 3. 
the prayers and entreaties should be offered for whom? Kings and authorities. Now, did he say conservative kings and authorities? <laughs> did he say Bible-believing kings and authorities? Did he say that? Does anyone have that translation? No, no one has that translation. And think about it in context. So the kings and authorities would have been people who were what? Opposed to their message. Pray for them. This is really shameful. So either you are going to pray for people or be silent. Keep the tweets and the Instagrams and the Facebook posts and whatever else you do or Snapchats to yourself if you're not going to also pray. Find a place of solace. I mean, a place where you can just go away and be with the Lord. Christ talked about, you know, your closet, wherever that closet may be. I'm not saying you limit your prayers there, but find a place of solace which quiet. I mean, I have a couple places. And sometimes for me on campus, it's busy. I'm going in between. Someone may see me walking around campus. That's it for me. I'll walk around campus and I'm praying. Sometimes I'll walk through the offices and I can pray. Oh, I pray for Michael, pray for Rod Anderson, pray for our missionaries. But here is the other part. But be free to pray in other environments. I mean, when you travel, I've done much prayer at 35,000 feet in, you know, seat 10D or whatever it was. Much prayer at 35,000 feet. I pray when I've driven. This is eyes open driving, okay? <laughs> yeah, because I'll have, you know, all of us, for the most part, some of us are really fancy. We don't have these things anymore. We have our smartphone in the dash, and I'll have my little app on, which is called Echo. It's a great, you can download it, and it'll just scroll through things. And as it scrolls through it, I'm, I'll just, I'm driving, and I can notice it at the corner of my eye, and I pray. And I pray. And sometimes I've purposely not taken a certain route, although it was faster. Let me just get on the highway, because if I'm turning every 400 yards, and it's saying, in 400 feet, turn left, and 300 feet, turn left, I say, forget that. If I can just deal with the four or five and go through it, then I can pray more, probably. When you're, it's, you're at the doctor's office, Pray. You see people around you, Lord, how many of these people know you, I wonder? Let me pray for them. Let me ask the Lord to intervene. You're going for a walk, pray. You're going running, pray. You're exercising, pray. Don't think that somehow that I have to take on a certain posture for me to pray, or a certain place to pray. It's this, number five, fight the wandering mind with lists, pictures, and notes. Lists. You can pray through that list. Lord, here are the people that I should be praying for. Pictures of people. I always find that seeing someone's face, that's why I even ask for the people in our fellowship group. Take a picture. I want to see your face. I can remember it. I can pray for you. Notes that you have. Write them down. Go back through your, you if you take notes in um, church, go back through that message. Lord, how do I enact this? What, what does this mean for my life? How can I apply this for me? And I'm going to move to number six. Develop the habit of praying scripture. This would be so helpful. Get Donald Whitney's book, you know, Praying the Bible. Helpful little book that's on it. But let's turn to a passage. 
Who, anyone have a favorite verse? Who has a favorite verse? Okay, you had your chance. Let me go for another person. Who has a favorite verse? All right, come on, tell us. Oh, wow, wonderful. Yeah, let's, let's go there. I was at 57. Here we go. Let's go there. Let me look at, oh, wow, it's two minutes till. Where does time go? Where it's supposed to? 5511. So will my word be which goes forth from your mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and what, without s- succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So you pray this scripture. How would you pray this scripture? I might pray, Lord, thank you that your word is all sufficient, that nothing can hold it back. Thank you that as Michael Riccardi preached your word today, that he did it with a sense of passion and clarity. It wasn't really his word, it was your word that was preached, Lord. I'm confident that it will not return empty. You will do in the hearts of people what you want to do. And it can happen right now. It can happen later today. It can happen a year from now. Lord, that you might save someone. Lord, that you might rebuke someone. Lord, that you might encourage someone. You always accomplish what you desire because you are a sovereign God. The psalmist tells us that in Psalm 103, your sovereignty rules over all. And I thank you for that. The psalmist also says that the Lord is in the heavens and you do whatever you please. And I thank you for that. I pray that whatever it has to do in my life, that it would do it. I see the potential for pride that is there, that you would quench it in my own heart, that you cause me to love humility as Jesus Christ was humble. We can pray through scripture. Who has a good psalm? Who has a psalm that they like? What's that? No, I'm sorry, psalm. I wasn't clear. See, there's that clarity thing, communication. But that's a great, that's a great song. Psalm. Psalm 19. Okay, let's go there. Psalm 19. The heavens are declaring, telling the glory of God. Thank you, God, that you're a glorious God. Thank you. When I look up into the heavens, I don't see something that was created over millions and billions of years. I see something that you created by your very word. And as I look into the heavens, it's an account that you're watching over my life, that you control all things. And how much more if you know every star by name that you know me? I praise you for that and thank you for it. You're a gracious God. Pray through scripture. Let me give you, let's go to something that's a bit different. Uh, just a couple more minutes, I promise you. Um, hear this, verse 8. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, that helped. That's helpful. Um, Luke 15, Luke 15, verse 8. Oh, what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully to it until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I found the coin which I had lost. So I might pray here, Lord, there are people in my family, they're lost. They haven't found this coin yet. I pray that you would call them to yourself. I pray they would give up the things of the world and they would experience the joy of this woman who found eternal life. Lord, 
give me, give all of these people in this room the joy of salvation. That when people see us, that they would see something different about us. I thank you. We pray through scripture. It's a great habit. Number seven, develop the discipline of fasting. I wish I had time to talk about that. I am going in a fellowship group. You can eventually download it probably in August, do two weeks on fasting and prayer. It's a lost discipline in the Christian life. Uh, it's misunderstood. I think we should still be engaged in fasting and prayer. Number eight, start with a very reasonable amount of time and allow the experience in the spirit to move upon your conscience. See, what the amount of time I pray that I'm committed to, my conscience has told me, this should be a minimum for you. Do at times I miss it because something happens? I do, and I don't get flustered by it. I get back on track again. So I'm saying to you, start with something that's reasonable. Start, God, I'm going to give you this so many minutes today. I don't know what that is. That's why I just avoid the formula approach to this. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to commit to it. It may mean that I need to dial back the wake-up time, 15 minutes or 10 minutes. I'm going to give you that first part of the day that first fruit of my day and have thoughts about God and I'm going to pray. Then let time and contents and experience go from there. Number nine, and it, the thought, don't start off with great expectations, but yet it wanes over time. Um, yes, you had a question. Oh, you're waiting for nine. <laughs> All right, follow the Daniel principle. Divide your day, maybe in the three parts. I tell my students, they're required to pray a certain amount of time a day. And I say, well, divide it into three parts. Don't try to pray for 45 minutes at once if you're not used to it. Divide it into parts. Maybe you're, you're striving for 20 minutes a day. Divide that into parts, perhaps, as you move ahead. Here's the last thought. I do need to, uh, forgive me, I need two more minutes of your time. Matthew 26. Because I think we, the greatest battle by the greatest warrior. Verse 36, Matthew 26. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He was greatly grieved and distressed. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me or pray with me. He went and he fell on his face and prayed. He came back and found his disciples sleeping. So you men could not watch with me for one hour. Verse 40. Verse 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot Pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 43, again, he found, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Verse 44, he left them again and went away a third time and prayed. He came and found them asleep. The greatest warrior and the greatest battle, a battle for your souls. And what did he do? He prayed. So I encourage you to do the same. The Lord be with you, and I pray that you'll win this battle.